Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. You know, um, over the past few days, senior producer Amelia Brock and I have been talking about uh, something that I want to share with you just very briefly uh, this morning before I introduce the panel. We've gone through such a difficult year, all of us. Um, The holidays are upon us. People are not getting to see family and friends the way they uh, normally would. We're still caught up in this election, which seems to be endless with the president uh, tweeting and uh, basically yelling out his objections to what he calls fraud in states like Georgia. I mean, it's a tough time. And so Amelia and I have been talking about what it means to find small comforts in uh, moments like this. And she actually had one this morning that was just referred to in the NPR news break. Um, Great Britain, the National Health Service, has in fact begun uh, giving vaccines, so the Pfizer vaccine, uh, to uh, uh, residents of the country. Margaret Keenan, a 90-year-old uh, former jewelry shop assistant, was the first recipient. And if you see a picture of her, it's wonderful. She's sitting in a, in a, a chair in a, in a hospital setting, uh, getting the vaccine and wearing a blue Merry Christmas T-shirt <laughs> with a very jolly penguin uh, on it. And, of course, the vaccine will start rolling out here, uh, we hope, in uh, the weeks ahead. And in that regard, I should say that um, FDA uh, has now said that this story moved just minutes ago, that the Pfizer vaccine offers what they're calling strong protection after just the first dose. So as the vaccine starts rolling out, that becomes more than a small comfort. That becomes a vital way for us to move forward. All right. Having said all that, we're going to do a show on the vaccines on, on next on Monday's show next week. But look, we've got a lot to talk about in politics right now. Um, and so I want to introduce the panel. And as I do so, let me tell you, we're, we're doing two days of um, pledge here at GPB Radio. As we come to the end of the year, uh, we really hope that you will continue to support us. And so today's show is going to include some opportunities for you to do that. All right. All of that said, uh, it's Tuesday. Uh, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is uh, with us again today. And we're also really pleased to welcome uh, one of the hardest working people in show business right now, GPB's uh, political reporter, Stephen Fowler, who has been all over covering uh, election news. Um, Very quickly, Stephen, I think NPR, far be it for me to argue with them, but they said that this so-called safe harbor will apply to all 50 states. I think Georgia will not meet today's safe harbor deadline because you have to have all lawsuits wrapped up before uh, December 8th, before six days before the actual certification on the 14th. And we still have open lawsuits. Isn't that your understanding? Well, uh, you know, Bill, the safe harbor law is actually, uh, I think, been called one of the poorly, most poorly written federal laws there is because it's incredibly confusing. (laughs) But the safe harbor is if a state has certified its electors, its slate of electors, and cleared any legal challenges. The Associated Press this morning says that Wisconsin has a hearing later this week, which will push them past the deadline. 
But Georgia, we still potentially do have one lawsuit filed by President Trump, his campaign, and David Schaefer, the chair of the Republican Party. They filed it on Friday, apparently didn't have the proper filing fee or forms filled out. But they say that's rectified now. But I'm looking at the documents and I don't see a hearing scheduled. And so I'm not 100 percent certain. But Georgia does have certification. The governor certified the results last night. So in that regard, at least, Georgia has met its obligation. Okay, well, we're going to watch how that unfolds, uh, because if we haven't met the safe harbor, it means that there is some small, tiny, but nevertheless, they're opening for uh, Congress to look at our uh, electors and and perhaps uh, question them, although that is an incredibly unlikely and extreme scenario in all this. Tamar Hallerman, um, Stephen just mentioned we've had a couple of lawsuits rejected again uh, by the courts here in Georgia. A federal judge uh, uh, yesterday rejected uh, Trump's, uh, well, she was fired by the Trump team, Sidney Powell, but she continues to advocate um, and and promote her conspiracy theories. And Judge uh, uh, Timothy Batten, federal district judge, uh, who, by the way, was appointed by a Republican, George W. Bush, uh, basically uh, said, that, first of all, the challenge belongs in state court, uh, and, but he, he couldn't find any merit to them whatsoever tomorrow. And he also said that the remedy that, that Sidney Powell was seeking, which was to kind of overturn millions or, or nullify millions of votes that were cast for Joe Biden in, in Georgia, was akin to ju- judicial activism and that he wasn't willing to, to take this step. And this is this is from a judge who was appointed by by George W. Bush. So uh, pretty uh, extraordinary um, ruling to, to kind of quash uh, one of the latest lawsuits that we've seen from the Trump campaign, or at least uh, allied forces. Um, Stephen, uh, Sidney Powell, of course, was here with uh, Atlanta lawyer Lynn Wood last Wednesday for a big rally up, I think, in Alpharetta, where uh, uh, she talked again about unleashing the Kraken, a reference to a movie that was released around 2000, 2001, something, Clash of the Titans, the Kraken being a, a enormous monster, who, by the way, was eventually defeated uh, and did not survive the movie. But uh, the Kraken apparently is no longer on the loose in Georgia. Yeah, you know, well, Sidney Powell did file another appeal to the 11th Circuit Court. Um, I uh, I got the headline, uh, Judge Finds Kraken is Lacking, because uh, that's what it was. But what's remarkable, <laughs> what's, what's remarkable, you know, the, what's remarkable in all of these election cases is that um, none of the election contests that have been filed in Georgia in state court or federal court have been filed by lawyers that have election law experience. And if you're going to do something like, say, overturn the votes of 5 million people, you might want to do things like have basic knowledge of Georgia election laws and basic knowledge of the rules and contests. The judges in these cases haven't even gotten to the point of deciding whether or not there is a Venezuelan conspiracy theory with our machines being hacked because these basic procedural issues are there and there have been these hurdles. And so it just goes to show that perhaps uh, the muddying the waters around the election and making people question things is been the goal more than actually trying to legitimately overturn the results. 
not only that, but lots of the lawsuits have had t- embarrassing typos or information that's been mixed up. One of them mentioned that that the Dominion voting machines was actually turning Biden votes into Donald Trump votes. Uh, not only that, as you mentioned earlier, there were um, issues with some of the filing fees, um, you know, really embarrassing clerical errors that that should have been taken care of before and are really kind of distracting from the arguments that that they're trying to make. At the same time, though, uh, perception is often reality. And so now in the the minds of of millions of voters in Georgia, potentially, um, they're they're not happy with the implementation of of the elections anymore. And, And that holds a lot of peril moving forward, especially for uh, Brian Kemp and, and Brad Raffensperger going into 2022. Um, you know, it's interesting about all this, tomorrow, and hasn't been pointed out enough, I don't think, is that Dominion uh, had voting uh, apparatus in uh, a number of the states that Trump won. For instance, there were, you know, Dominion was very active in the in the in Ohio, where the president uh, won the election. There haven't been any accusations in Ohio that Dominion uh, somehow flipped Biden votes for uh, Trump. It's part of this selective uh, thinking uh, that continues to, as you say, Tamar, win over the diehard supporters of President Trump. Exactly. And that's going to have, you know, you're already seeing it as the, the legislature begins to, to prepare for the new session in January. They had their um, retreat for new lawmakers this week. And you're already starting to see chatter about changing uh, election law, especially when it comes to absentee ballots and tightening up the process around that, uh, potentially providing uh, voter ID when you're, you're filing absentee, uh, your absentee ballots. And so, uh, not only is there going to be a change when the session comes, for sure, or at least a fight over it, but we're going to see this every, you know, pop up every single election from here on out, these doubts coming from Republican voters. So, Stephen, it's easy to mock some of this uh, because it is so absurd. And we've said on the show over and over again that, that facts matter, and it is not partisan to say that these are absurd allegations in many cases. But but it's, as Tamar points out, Stephen, when... When it's when these lies are repeated enough, there are people who start believing them. And an example of that, Stephen, is that we now have four GOP Georgia state senators who have filed a petition demanding that the governor call a special session so the legislature can replace the Biden electors with Trump electors. That's no longer funny. That's serious business, Stephen. Right. I mean, it, it's concerning when you have anyone in Georgia that buys into things that are not grounded into reality. It's even more concerning when elected officials who are part of the process and should and do know better about things that uh, enabled this sort of activity. Um, you've got I was in a hearing last week where I heard state senators ask about hacking voting machines and seeing 12 year old tag voting machines and how we could get rid of them. There was even a presentation on how you, the state legislature, can overturn election results. And nobody said, you know what, none of the Republican lawmakers at least said, you know what, this isn't right. Um, We should point out, of course, that Governor Kemp has repeatedly said he will not call a special session and that, in fact, he has no authority, despite what President Trump continues to tweet in attacks against him, to do anything about an election which the Secretary of State has certified, which uh, Kemp has subsequently again certified. Um, so um, I'll tell you what, we're going to move on. We've got to get to a pledge break right now. And, and you know, I want to say something very basic. 
Political Rewind this entire year has been coming to you five days a week. That has been, frankly, a big lift for uh, our team. Um, but we love the fact that we now get to be here every day to help you unravel what's going on in this extraordinary political year. And, um, and I hope that you... Uh, if you have not been able to support us for one reason or another, we'll take a minute and do that today so we can continue with the work that we think matters so much to you as listeners and which you tell us matters so much to you all the time. So here's how you can do that. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. I just want to say again how much I appreciate those of you who support uh, this show and GPB Radio in uh, in general. Uh, since we have been doing the show five days a week, our communication with you has been a lot more frequent, whether you're tweeting to us, posting on Facebook Live, sending me emails. And you really, there are a good number of you out there who kind of treat us like family now. And so from Sam Burmas Dawes, Jesse Nyswanger, Jake Troyer, Amelia Brock, uh, thank you for uh, letting us be part of your day, and uh, and thank you for the support you can give us. All right, Tamar Hallerman and uh, Stephen Fowler are with us. Stephen, Tamar already alluded to it, but at the biennial, which is going on out in Athens right now, uh, legislators gathering for kind of pre-legislative uh, uh, conferences to uh, orient new members and all that sort of thing, uh, there is talk about a couple of potential changes that Republican legislators are going to want to make. Um, one of them uh, that's been discussed is the notion of adding a layer of voter ID proof to mail-in ballots, um, which may or may not be necessary. We'll have a lot of time to unpack that as the legislative session gets started. But the other one is perhaps an effort to, to uh, uh, end no-excuse mail-in voting in Georgia. Um, states have come, many states have come more and more to rely on absentee balloting. And, uh, and, and it's, it's a little troubling to hear that there may be an effort to overturn it here. Well, yeah, I think that's going to be the lesser of the likelihoods, because if you look at really? why they put, if you look at why no excuse absentee balloting was put in by Republicans, it was primarily to uh, because Republican voters are the ones using absentee by mail. And so, you know, as we've seen in this election so far, there are about a million requests that have been made. More than 600,000 of them are people that um, are on the rollover list, which is they're older than 65, disabled, military and overseas. But that means that you've already got, you know, 400,000 Georgians that would ordinarily be showing up to the polls during early voting or on election day that are opting to vote by mail. And what the election officials will say, if you talk to them around the state, is that the fewer people that show up in person on election day, the easier everyone's lives will be. And so I don't anticipate the Secretary of State's office and the county elections officials would go for that. But, I mean, we are still controlled by a Republican House and Senate and governor. 
So uh, for now, at least, that is still something that could be a possibility. Tamar, over the last few months, uh, as President Trump increased his attacks on mail-in voting, uh, Speaker of the House David Ralston here in Georgia has said he, too, he said it on this show a couple of times over those that period of time, he, too, has doubts about the, all the, about the integrity of mail-in voting. He thinks there are reasons to scrutinize it more carefully. So it's, it'll be interesting to see how he responds to what may be introduced and how he may be a part of that. I think another factor is how long COVID is going to be sticking around. Um, you know, this expansion of mail-in voting has been invaluable um, as as COVID has has spread, especially as we've been concerned about some of our elderly and and more vulnerable residents. Um, so I think they need to also make sure that that COVID's completely out of the way if they're going to do anything. Another issue I'm going to be watching is um, kind of the the signature issue on the absentee ballot uh, form. That's something that that Trump has been railing about being able to to kind of audit and double check all of that and i wonder if that's going to be an issue as well maybe steven uh knows more than i do about that particular issue yeah i mean that that's one of the things that you have heard the most from uh people in the president's orbit and others why don't we have the absentee ballot audit i mean the secretary of state said um that one of the reforms that he wants to do is to have some sort of photo id with absentee ballots which at first glance, sounds uh, like, how do you do that? Does somebody mail a copy of their driver's license back? Does somebody have to get their absentee ballot notarized before they send it in? But it, but we already have that issued this year with the online absentee ballot request portal, where you can go and request it digitally by putting in your driver's license or Georgia ID number along with your request. So it's checking your photo ID to ensure that you are allowed to request an absentee ballot. And so that's one thing that the Secretary of State's office said that they would like to continue. And I guess it remains to be seen throughout this legislative session if that's the only method that will be used to as a new way to verify absentee ballots. Uh, Stephen, again, a, a little fact check on this here. When when we hear allegations that dead people voted by absentee ballot, when we hear allegations that people from out of state who don't have residency in Georgia uh, voted by mail-in ballot, let's be careful about something here. I could live in Chicago, Illinois, not be a resident of Georgia, and try somehow to get the state to send me a mail-in ballot uh, to Chicago. But as soon as my application arrives in uh, Georgia, I, I'm che- it's checked to be sure that I am a legal voter in the state of Georgia. It isn't as easy as some of these uh, 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 lawsuits uh, seem to suggest, right? Yeah, I mean, there are multiple layers of people, places, and things to prevent <laughs> illegal votes from happening and from being counted. Now, it is important to note that there are always individual minor exceptions. There's a data entry error. There's, uh, you know, uh, what we saw in the June primary was opportunities where people would go and submit an absentee ballot and then go and vote in person, and nobody called to check to make sure that they had not voted an absentee ballot or not. And these things happen because at the end of the day, elections are run and participated in by human beings. But they are isolated. (laughs) They are very few. And, you know, almost rarely is it rise to the level to order a new election or order any sort of new things. But there are, you know, 
there are multiple, multiple ways that your vote is secure and checked to make sure that it's the right person that's supposed to be casting it. And that has actually gotten even better with Georgia's new election system and voting machines. So, so Tamar, that actually is also a fact check on one of the points that Kelly Loeffler made repeatedly in the debate with uh, Raphael Warnock Sunday night. She talked about because she wouldn't acknowledge any of the questions asked, uh, asking her whether Joe Biden had won Georgia and the election, and she uh, dodged that. Uh, she kept talking about, well, there are problems in the vote here. The Secretary of State's office is pursuing 250 allegations of some form of misdeed in the election. But in fact, what Brad Raffensperger has said repeatedly is, yes, we are investigating, as Stephen t- describes it, individual cases. But he has said himself they don't amount to an, enough to in any way overturn the results of the election for Joe Biden here. And many of the things that the president and his allies are alleging are are kind of widespread systematic things that involve multiple states, the the voting machines, you know, this this vast conspiracy. And so, yeah, when we're talking about 250 cases, a lot of that, as Stephen said, is human error. Um, The problem right now, though, is we don't really know what those 250 cases are. The Secretary of State's office has not um, kind of shared how big or small those are. Um, I, I doubt that would clear up a lot of the compa- complaints that we're hearing from, from the Republican side. But still, maybe that, that could help point out, look, a lot of these things are kind of small human error type things, or maybe not. Stephen, do you have insight about that? So the Secretary of State's office said the other day that there are 250 investigations opened in this calendar year, which includes that June primary election where there were investigations of things such as Gwinnett County failing to have all of its polls open on time because their truck was too small and they didn't deliver equipment and machines. Um, But they investigate credible allegations saying um, the election was rigged and thousands of votes need to be cast out is not a credible allegation. Somebody saying, I believe that XYZ person at XYZ address is illegally registered and cast a ballot. That's something they can investigate. And you know, look back to a couple of years ago when you had state representative Dan Gassaway had his election redone three times is because the margin was so close and he offered evidence of more people than the margin. I believe it was like 12 votes or something. He filed a lawsuit that said there are 14 people, I believe, that illegally voted in this election. And here's why. And 14 is greater than 12. And that's why he had an election redone and redone again. So when we're talking about credible, specific allegations, the Secretary of State's office is looking at very specific, this is the person or place or thing, this is why it is illegal, and this is why it altered the outcome or changed something. So that's the types of things that they look at. And Bill, just because it's investigation doesn't mean that there was actual wrongdoing. Right, right. All right. Um, I want to move on. We're going to get to a pledge break in just a minute. But uh, yesterday we spent a good deal of time on the show talking about Warnock and Leffler based on the debate they had Sunday night. And I do want to turn to talk a little bit about John Ossoff and David Perdue in a moment. But I have some maybe news for both of you that really kind of staggered me early this morning. I got an email from Rick Dent, who's become kind of the expert on looking at campaign uh, spending and has done our show a couple of times. Here's here's Rick's latest um, here is the disparity now between Leffler's money 
and Raphael Warnock's money. Leffler has now got $197.2 million either already spent or committed to spending. And uh, Democrats have about $75.7 million. It's just staggering the difference in that race number two, particularly tomorrow, where where Kelly Loeffler has uh, made it clear she will put in as much money as she needs to to win uh, election. That is a staggering total in general, how much money is being spent uh, over the course of a few weeks. But look, out of out of the four candidates right now, Leffler has kind of the most to do. Raphael Warnock really managed to skate by during the opening round of that Senate race because Leffler was so focused on Doug Collins. So she has to rush to find him before January 5th. And that's exactly what she's trying to do in these ads and her debate appearance. All right. Um, we've spent some time talking about money, and we will continue to do that. Right now, we are going to uh, uh, talk about money again. But this time, we're talking about our hopes that you uh, may commit some money, if you haven't done so, to help support Georgia Public Radio, uh, Broadcasting Radio, as well as our show, Political Rewind. Once again, here's how you can do that. Tamara Hellerman and Stephen Fowler join me. Before Rick Dent bashes me over the head for misrepresenting his figures, let me be more accurate. Um, the total spent in the Leffler uh, race, the Leffler-Warnock race, is $197 million. Uh, Republicans have uh, so far spent $121.4 million. Democrats are at $75.7 million. So the gap is still staggering, but I apologize for, you know, this is what happens when I get emails so early in the morning. I don't really have my eyes open. Um, Stephen, let, let me turn to the Ossoff-Purdue race for a minute. Um, we, we know that Ossoff had an empty podium to debate against on Sunday because Purdue refused to debate him. He did do two debates with Ossoff in the general election. Um, and I, I guess the question is, it gave Ossoff a half hour unimpeded. Um, but not many people are paying a lot of attention to debates, I don't think. What do you perhaps think Ossoff gained and Purdue lost, if anything, on either side by this one-person uh, non-debate? I mean, Ossoff basically got a half hour of free digital advertising, of free commercials, of free uh, one-liners and zingers that he can cut to run with uh, the, the rest of the campaign. Um, he was asked some questions about things like coronavirus relief and other things where um, the Purdue camp seized on a couple of comments, as they do in debates. But, you know, if, if you're David Purdue you don't necessarily have anything to lose by not going to this debate, in my opinion, because this election is going to be about who can turn out their base of voters more than the other. And David Perdue's base of voters is not watching a 5 p.m. Sunday Atlanta Press Club debate. And there's nothing that he can say or do in that debate that's going to get them to turn out more. Rather, being in Valdosta, standing with the president and Kelly Leffler, uh, having a rally, that's going to be the type of thing that gets people excited more rather than answering questions about stock trades or about COVID relief or about what do you think about this policy? And so uh, obviously there are people that would like to see them both debate, but they have debated before. And um, obviously uh, most people were paying attention to the Leffler-Warnock debate more than the Ossoff-Purdue debate. 
So it's not exactly like John Ossoff just had this absolutely golden hour or half an hour opportunity where he just got to broadcast his message to the world for free. Yeah, and you know the the format was was weird, and even Ossoff kind of mentioned it's strange debating an empty podium. And I think the Purdue strategy was to kind of let Ossoff kind of look weird in that situation and, and kind of move on for it. As Stephen said, his base is not going to be watching uh, this debate. You can see in his strategy, Purdue is, is going on Fox News. He's going on Newsmax. He's hanging out with the president. He's not really talking to um, local press as much as, as he was um, in the, the lead up to the election. And, you know, it, it's not hard to see why. You know, we're going to ask him questions about Trump losing the election or about issues he doesn't want to talk about. This way, he can uh, focus on socialism, uh, you know, the, the issues that are going to get his base out. And, and this isn't about persuading new people. This is about uh, turning out the people who already support you. So why bother? So um, it, it, tomorrow, while you've got the ball, let me ask you this. There was a, an interesting piece I read early this morning. I frankly can't remember who was Washington Post, New York Times, Politico, but um, it proposed an interesting strategy that that may be unfolding in these two Senate runoff elections, which is we know how uh, how aggressively Leffler attacked Raphael Warnock in the debate. We also know how she has gone after him in all of her advertising and the PAC advertising. I mean, everybody's attacking in the PAC advertising. But there's some speculation now that to some extent, since these two candidates in each party are sort of running as a ticket, whether they want to or not, that Warnock is a more vulnerable target for Republicans than Ossoff, given his years as a pastor, given some of the comments that he has made over the years, which can be seen as controversial, and that perhaps by more aggressively attacking him, as she did in the debate, you bring down an Ossoff at the same time, while there's really not quite a, he's, the article described him, a, a Republican seeing him as kind of being a blank slate in some ways. That's a really interesting idea. I don't know if it's real, but it's an interesting thing to think about in terms of the dynamic of the two races. Yeah, and the conventional wisdom right now is that, you know, the, the two Republicans, the two Democrats are either going to go down together or get elected together. And so maybe there are voters out there who are who are only going to show up and only vote for John Ossoff or only vote for Raphael Warnock. But I find that kind of hard to believe once you're kind of out at the polls and you feel strongly about one. And as you mentioned, Raphael Warnock has a much longer um, track record than, than John Ossoff, simply because he's older. He has all these sermons that um, you know, he's spoken from the pulpit every Sunday um, for years. So there's way more for, for them to pick through. Not only that, but he he uh, is the main pastor at a church with a huge history and a, especially a lot to say about racial justice, which for the membership of Ebenezer Baptist might not be controversial, but for a Republican-based audience, that, that certainly is. So they're scoring points with that, but at the same time, they also have to be careful because Raphael Warnock is African-American. He'd be the first black Democrat from the South ever elected to the Senate. Um, and it's uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church, the spiritual home place of Martin Luther King Jr. And, where, you know, as my colleague Jim Galloway wrote in a really great column last week, Republicans, especially Johnny Isaacson, have worked really hard to kind of build a respectable relationship with that church. And uh, it, it seems like if they, they overstep, that could really uh, hurt that Republican brand. 
And you know, Tamar, in another world back when we could do things in public again, I was there in January at Ebenezer Baptist Church when Kelly Leffler and Raphael Warnock shared the same stage. Brad Raffensperger <laughs> was there too. Um, but it, it, this was before Warnock had officially announced he was running, but you know, it was in the works. And he gave some perhaps veiled remarks directed to the senator about, you know, it's great to show up in church on MLK Day, but what you do the other days is what the true test of your character is, something along those lines. But I think it also, you know, goes back to, you know, David Perdue and John Ossoff are both known defined entities at this point. John Ossoff ran for the 2017 special election for Georgia's 6th District. David Perdue is a senator. You're not going to do very much character development in your uh, campaign at this point for that race. But Leffler and Warnock are both relative political newcomers. Leffler's been in office for less than a year. And uh, as you saw in the debate, they're both kind of green politicians. And so with these hundreds of millions of dollars coming in, that can go a long way towards defining the positives or negatives of either one of these characters as a way to kind of backdoor uh, the other race. I guess you could say in the same token that, you know, Kelly Leffler's strengths and weaknesses are going to drive the fortunes of David Perdue more than his own. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Tomorrow, I want to pick up on, on this, uh, uh, especially race number one, uh, Perdue and uh, Ossoff, because you have a front page story uh, in today's AJC that's worth uh, mentioning. Um, one of the things that Ossoff, of course, keeps hitting at, uh, and by the way, Warnick has been doing it again with Leffler, is uh, this accusation that, uh, uh, in fact, Purdue engaged in insider trading after getting a briefing that coronavirus is going to be much worse, a private briefing, uh, than people uh, realized at the time. Um, and and Purdue, like Leffler, continues to say over and over again, I was cleared of any accusations. Uh, there's no problem. Uh, a Senate ethics committee cleared me. Um, but Tamara, you point out in your piece this morning that that bipartisan ethics commission committee doesn't very often uh, find fault with anybody who comes before it. Yeah, out of hundreds of complaints that had been filed over uh, 10 years, only six of them led to any sort of admonishment publicly, which is really akin to a slap on the wrist. But in terms of real disciplinary action, they really haven't done much. And the, the, it's hard to track because so much, everything they do, more or less, is done in secret. So they don't have public hearings like another any other congressional committee. Um, and so it's hard to kind of check what they're doing or, or what they're thinking. Um, but, but you know, they, they seem to have let Purdue and, um, and Leffler go, um, or, or at least for now. But something that my reporting um, uncovered is that, in general, there is a precedent on that committee where they don't want to open major investigations so close to elections because they're nervous that their committee will be used as a political football. Um, like so much on on Capitol Hill. And so in general, they will try and defer a lot of that stuff. And um, it's unclear if that's what happened in the case of of Leffler or Purdue. And the the committee wouldn't really talk to us for this story. Stephen, the New York Times did uh, do two pieces in the past week about that that expanded upon the uh, Purdue side of this story, uh, saying that he made more stock trades than any other member of the United States uh, Senate. And uh, the Times 
uh, you know, sort of renewed this story at a bad time for Senator Perdue, at least in terms of what the Ossoff people might uh, take advantage of in attacking him. Yeah, I mean, it, it really gets down to a fundamental question of whether or not there was ethics investigations cleared or not cleared. But I guess the base question boils down to, and this was something that was asked of Senator Lesser at the debate, is should members of Congress be allowed to trade stocks, um, whether Purdue personally directed these trades or whether his advisor did it? You know, some of the members of Congress, including Kelly Leffler, are, you know, magnitudes times wealthier than the average American. And they have the privilege of getting information and briefings about matters of national security and international trade and all of these sort of big market moving information that optically there's a question of, you know, whether they should be allowed. And, you know, it's I think it's a question that regardless of who wins and who has the majority is something that might be explored in the future. And something, you know, that I know the ethics committee, especially when Johnny Isaacson from from Georgia, who led the committee for a couple of years, he used to always advise people to to enter into blind trust. So they have no control over any stock trades made on their their behalf. And and for the most part, a lot of senators ignored that. So it kind of goes to show uh, how Washington is, is thinking about that privilege. I am glad you mentioned, Mar, the fact that if there's some irony in that uh, Leffler, especially, is uh, being has been b- brought before the Ethics Committee, which her, sec- her predecessor in that seat uh, used to be uh, the chair of. Um, all right, we're completely out of time uh, for today's show. Tamar Hallerman, St- Stephen Fowler, thank you for a really terrific conversation. I'm very grateful to you both for uh, being here. Uh, as we leave you today, um, we're going to give you one more chance today. Uh, if you're able to support us and haven't done it so far, uh, think about it. At least think about it. I know these are difficult times. Everybody's struggling right now, and many of you are struggling financially as uh as I understand. But if there's some way that you can support the work that we do here at GPB Radio and certainly what we're trying to do with Political Rewind, um, as I say goodbye until tomorrow and say, take care, stay healthy, and yes, please wear a mask. Here's how you can support us.